0: Hey London, welcome back to London Live, your Wednesday edition. It is I, Jess Brady, still filling in for the wonderful and lovely Mike Stubbs, who is on vacation this week. Although you may have heard him this morning on the Craig Needle Show as uh, Craig was talking to Dale Hunter, the fantastic coach of the London Knights. Uh, So Mike took a, a quick trip into the studio for that special interview, but he is off until Tuesday. I realized yesterday, after my lovely mother pointed it out, that I've been saying we're back on Monday. Mike's back on Monday. Nah, he is not. That is long weekend. That's Victoria Day holiday. We will not be here, not live. No. So Tuesday, Mike is back on Tuesday. Thanks, mom. Mama B correcting me. She's she's tuning in. So thanks for that. <laughs> and I will try to remember throughout the rest of the program as I update you on uh, what's happening for the rest of the week and when Mike is back. So, it's Wednesday. I think peeking out the studio window, we are seeing the best weather that we have all week. Monday, very dreary. Yesterday, a little bit better, still cooler. Today, beautiful sunshine, less cloud cover than uh yesterday even. So we are we are doing well. What's the temperature? 19 degrees. Oh, we're going to see people in flip-flops out there soon and shorts. Lovely. Now we're getting into the good stuff. We're getting better weather now, especially as we head into that long weekend. I'm not going to tell you what the forecast looks like for the long weekend. I'm not going to do it. I don't want to depress you. So we're just going to leave that to the folks in doing the news and John Wilson to tell you the uh, the forecast later. We're not going to talk about it. What we are going to talk about is a bunch of stuff today, as always. We've got a jam-packed show. Uh, we're going to talk about bad drivers in London. People love to rant about that. Uh, but first, off the top of the show, we are talking about a court ruling that came down uh, earlier this morning from the Ontario Court of Appeal. has to do with whether doctors in the province have to give patients referrals for services or care that they morally object to. I uh, will read you the news, the latest news update that's come down, and it says Ontario's highest court says doctors in the province have to give referrals for medical services that go against their religious beliefs. The Court of Appeal of Ontario has upheld the referral requirement after it was challenged by a group of doctors and three professional organizations. The requirement is part of a policy issued by Ontario's medical regulator on how to navigate issues like assisted abortion and contraception, among other medical treatments. Last year, a lower court ruled that the policy does limit doctors' religious freedom, but it is justified to ensure access to care. Now that is you know it's it's a case like it said it was it was first brought up last year it's uh, was it was appealed by those groups and now we have this ruling that's upholding the original that yes if doctors disagree or morally with with a a course of 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 treatment that their patients want they have to give those patients a referral to a doctor who will be able to assist them in that regard I think that is an excellent decision Uh, your patients your care to your patients should come first um, and and what their needs are, their medical needs, and referrals are a good thing. Um, On the line, we have Ruth von Fuchs. She is the president of Right to Die Society of Canada, and she joins us to talk about her reaction to this ruling from the Court of Appeal. Ruth, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us this afternoon. I
1: appreciate it. Well, thank you for contacting me.
0: So, Ruth, we talked a little bit off off the top about uh, the news of the day, which is uh, that the Court of Appeal of Ontario has upheld the lower ruling uh, about how doctors in the province do need to give referrals for medical services that go against their religious beliefs. So that goes for uh, abortion and assisted dying options. What's your reaction to hearing the news from the Court of Appeal?
1: I'm not surprised. The uh, That seems to be the feeling among learned and impartial people. That I think they phrased it as the welfare of the citizens sort of trumps the psychological difficulties of certain professionals.
0: Yes that that is bang on uh, what the, what the lower court ruling was that it was they acknowledged that yes doctors did have a bit of a limit on their religious freedom because of the ruling but it was justified to ensure access to care um even though it, you weren't surprised by it do you still feel maybe a little bit of relief as 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 an individual, I don't want my choices limited, uh, so I'm I'm happy to hear uh, on a personal level that uh, uh, that this court has upheld the ruling, just because I like choices, as most individuals would, and uh, are, are you at least a little relieved even just to know that it was an expected outcome, but it was the way you thought it would go?
1: Yes, I hoped it would go, like you. Um, and I was happy to hear you talk about care, because uh, actually the, the Quebec doctor's that responded to the survey and sort of inspired the politicians, uh, three-quarters of them said that they thought it should be part of the continuum of care. And it is care. It's the ultimate prevention of suffering. And it's what a lot of people really, really want when it looks like suffering is all that lies ahead.
0: Yes, and to me it's... It's just that like if if you are a doctor, if you've spent all that time and effort and uh, extreme, uh, you know, effort that you've put into this um, pursuit to become a medical professional, you go into it because you do care about people. And I would hope that, uh, you know, I I know that, you know, the majority of of doctors obviously do. They care very much about their patients. Um, But I mean, you can object to something but still provide an avenue for your patient who you do care about uh, to find the solution that's best for them.
1: Yes, that's that's the question. And uh, sometimes doctors will say, well, well, I pledge to do no harm. But what, what constitutes harm? Abandonment and forcing people to take, um, to have, you know, like, terminal sedation, for instance. They say, well, well, you won't suffer. We'll give you terminal sedation. But that means very often that you can't die at home. You have to die in our institution. And if you had hoped to donate your organs, or your cadaver. My husband and I were both cadaver donors for the U of T Medical School, and he wasn't accepted because he had contracted MRSA, a superbug. And he have to spend very much time in the hospital to do that. And that meant that one of his wishes as a person, part of his values, um, was ignored or made impossible, and, and that was a kind of a violation of his self. So it's, it's just generally... You've we shouldn't impose on other people values that are specific to us.
0: And now, Ruth, do you think that even though this, this ruling has come down now, it's upheld at the Court of Appeal level here in Ontario, do you think that this fight will continue? Will there will there be individuals who continue to push uh, for it to be reviewed? Do you think it'll, it'll move on, or is it something we're always going to have to have conversations about?
1: I don't think they can go any further in Ontario. And I think that you know, the delivery of health care is a provincial matter, I, I think. But I'm not an expert on uh, constitutional law or anything like that. So I, 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 you could ask that question of other people, perhaps. Uh, I don't think it can go any further. And maybe they are actually getting the message. I mean, that's, that's always a possibility.
0: I think, too, that uh, social uh, discussions about these issues, um, especially with assisted dying recently with, uh, you know, the rules loosening a little bit about that and, and, and just ideas are changing. There is, is much more acceptance of, of that option for people who are, are looking at uh, end of life issues. And I, I think that this, this probably falls in line with how a lot of people feel about it. True, true. Well, Ruth, thank you so much for your time today in uh, discussing this uh, news development that's come down in the last few hours. And uh, thank you again for taking time to chat with us.
1: Okay, glad to have been here.
0: Once again, talking about the Ontario Court of Appeals ruling, upholding the lower court ruling that physicians in Ontario will have to provide referrals to other doctors when patients request services or care that they are morally against. We need to take a quick break here on London Live. When we come back, we're talking about everyone's favourite topic, London drivers with Cheryl Ruth. We'll be back on 980 CFPL right after this. Hello again. We are back on London Live on 980 CFPL Global News Radio. It is your Wednesday afternoon edition of the show. And, you know, the promo intro here says it's the most lively show in London in the afternoons. Well, here's a topic that always gets lively when you talk about it. London drivers and pedestrians, for that matter. And it's something that always seems to rile people up. It's something everyone always has an opinion on. I can't tell you the amount of times I hear people complain about London drivers. And uh, even the other day, I was out out and about on Sunday, and uh, I was driving with my mom. We were going to the movies for Mother's Day. And I think we had like four instances where we saw drivers just making poor choices out on the roads, not the best behavior from London drivers. So I can totally sympathize with uh, our next guest, who is Cheryl Ruth. She's a concerned Londoner and also someone you will have heard on the roundtable discussions here on 980 CFPL. She's uh, almost like an influencer here in London. She's very well known for her work in the community. And Cheryl has uh, posted a few videos on her Twitter account of her Walk to work in the mornings, specifically around the area of uh, Horton and Richmond. So we're talking just just south of the downtown core, ever so slightly around the Le- Labatt's Le- Le- Plant and and that area. So, but she what she's posting and focusing on is drivers who are turning. Uh, around crosswalks when, you know, pedestrians are, are looking to walk through that area, when they've got the little, the, the lights lit up for them to cross and they have the right of way. And so Cheryl is concerned about how drivers are behaving when that is the case and not giving pedestrians uh, the amount of space that they should, in Cheryl's opinion. And so we're going to chat with her about what's going on and what she's taken those videos of. Cheryl, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon to talk about uh, your adventures in walking
2: in London. Thanks for having me.
0: So, tell me how this all started. You've been posting videos, taking videos on your walk to work, correct?
2: Yes, that's right. Uh, I started about a week ago. Uh, I've, every morning, I find myself getting more and more anxious walking to work, and that's it's simply because I have to cross the street and dodge so much traffic, whether it's people pulling into the, into the pedestrian crosswalk or dodging the light or for whatever reason. It's putting people at risk, and it's putting myself at risk, and I... I'm really to the point where I've had enough, so I took out my phone and started recording some of the terrible traffic that uh, pedestrians are experiencing.
0: Now, a lot of uh, the videos are around that Horton and Richmond area. So just coming into the downtown core, it's actually on my way to work. That's the route that I take. Most of the time when I'm coming in at, uh, you know, four in the morning, (laughs) there's no other traffic other than me. But this week, I've noticed that at normal traffic times, it is very congested. And uh, yeah, it can be it can be tricky when people are trying to to get around, dipsy doodle, make sure that they get through before the oncoming traffic. But certainly they should be obeying uh, pedestrian crosswalk signs.
2: Well, absolutely. And if you're if you're dodging oncoming traffic, it means you're driving when you shouldn't be. And usually when at Horton and Richmond, there is an advanced green from Horton to turn on to Richmond. So you have, it's quite a long light. It's probably 20 or 30 seconds that you have to get through that advance. But people are still going through after the red has shown, the, the red arrow is shown. The green light is, is turned on for the oncoming traffic and the pedestrian light comes on at the same time as the green light but cars are still dodging through that pedestrian intersection. So you either have to wait the five or six or even ten seconds, depending on how many cars, which gives you limited time to get across that street, or you hope to God that someone sees you when you're trying to cross and will stop and let you go ahead, but it's, just, it's not happening. And the videos that I've posted have shown I'm literally either standing on the curb or already in the intersection, and cars are still racing through.
0: Yeah, that's, um, you know, and I was going to say that I can absolutely confirm that that turning light is very generous because <laughs> every morning I count how many cars get through. And it's usually like 12 or 13 that are able to get through on that turning light. It's um, mm-hmm. it, it's pretty decent, I will say. I'm impressed with how long that light is because there are a lot that are quite a bit shorter and uh, I can appreciate why that is frustration for motorists, especially in, in heavy traffic areas. Um, but again, like obviously if there's a pedestrian that's waiting to cross, let them cross. Keep your eyes on them. It's your responsibility as a driver to be watching out for them. Uh, what's the um, response from your Twitter followers and the public in general been to these videos of you that you've posted?
2: It's been very supportive, and, and a lot of people have experienced the same thing that I do, and that's really just one intersection. Um, I plan to do other intersections. Oxford and Richmond is my next one because that is a really terrible intersection for that advanced green and your drivers racing through from Richmond onto Oxford, it's it's terrifying to have a car hurtling at you at 40, 50 kilometers an hour when you're three steps into the intersection. And there's nowhere for you to go, and there's nowhere for that driver to go other than to hit the car beside them. So, yeah, um, people have been very supportive and very understanding, and um, I don't think I've had anyone who's driving say, oh, it's the pedestrian's fault, um, or, yes, we're, we're screwing up. It's, it's typically people who are pedestrians or are people who walk a lot and have experienced the same thing.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, there's a new law also in Ontario. Well, it's not that new now. I think it came in sometime last year or the year before um, that even if people are in the crosswalk, like if you're turning right to go on, I'm I'm very bad at describing this, but (laughs) like if someone's (laughs) walking straight through a crosswalk and you want to turn right behind them, you have to wait until they are like all the way across the street before you're supposed to turn. Like they should be all the way out of your your potential way before you are turning. So even that, I, I think There's some confusion surrounding that because a lot of drivers are saying, "Well, what if they're on the other side, like well out of the way? Can't I turn then?" Um, And that's something that I'm I'm hoping to discuss with uh, with a sergeant from from London Police uh, right after we talk. Um, You know, just the rules, clarifying that rule so that people are really understanding what their obligation is when they're behind the wheel. Mm
2: -hmm. And I think there's a difference between the crossovers and pedestrian crosswalks. I think that's where that new rule came in was at the crossovers. However, if you see a pedestrian who is coming across the street, how important are you that you cannot wait five or six seconds for that person to safely cross the street, get onto the sidewalk, before you start inching your car into that pedestrian crossway, crosswalk? There's no one that important. And I watched this yesterday at Richmond and Dufferin. And I watched this elderly woman crossing Richmond Street with the light. She was, you know, following all the rules. No, she wasn't quite as fast as all the other people. But an SUV comes in off of Dufferin inches around her, inch by inch, literally intimidating her to walk faster so that they could pull around this woman and get to where they needed to go on Richmond. That is appalling. There's absolutely no reason for it. There's no reason why you could not have waited five seconds for that woman to safely cross the street. And I see this in the wintertime as well. You know, when it's very slippery, those pedestrian crosswalks are very slippery um, with those with the white paint, very, very slippery and then you have curbs, and then you have snow piles that you have to climb over too. So when you're, when you're walking across the street and you're climbing over a giant snow pile and a car is inching at you through the intersection, that is, it is not even, there's not even a word to describe that fear that, oh, my God, if I fall, if I fall back, I'm dead. I'm going to be run over because there's no way that driver is going to be able to slam on their brakes or avoid me in any possible way.
0: That's absolutely true. And I think it's, you know, just a lack of. Uh, like in in the case of of the of the elderly woman, I mean that to me just like that breaks my heart, you know, because she's she's just out there trying to to get her errands done or whatever it is that she needs to do, and yeah, that's I mean, there's being, uh, you know, wrapped up in 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 your own world and and just not paying attention and and having a bit of a reality check as to you know what what the actual real life situation is, you know, it's like I think if people uh, just took a moment, took a breath, and realized what they were doing, they they would probably be pretty upset with themselves.
2: I, I don't think people recognize it. And I don't even think it's an issue of distracted driving or anything like that. It's just selfishness. It's, it's being inconsiderate of other people who are around you and, and trying to get where they need to go, just as importantly as you are, as, as you have to get to where you're going. And we've just chosen a different mode. And we don't have three tons of steel wrapped around us to protect us when we're walking across the street. Um, And you know what, yes, there are pedestrians out there who are complete idiots and (laughs) will not follow the rules of the road like anybody else, but compared to the amount of drivers, those people are in the minority and we're still at a greater risk than anyone in a vehicle. And, you know, I I don't think it's going to end anytime soon, but if I can keep putting awareness on that, um, I'm going to do it. I don't think people realize just how rampant it is. And when you see one person, if one person says, oh, you know, I made a stupid mistake when I'm driving today. Okay. Well, times that by 15 to 20,000 other people that have made one stupid mistake while driving today. That's just today. That's 15 or 20,000 people who made one mistake that could have put someone's life at risk. And I would say the fact that we don't have more pedestrian fatalities or injuries is just sheer dumb luck, or it's pedestrians who are very, very aware and conscious of their surroundings.
0: So what then is uh, the goal in terms of, like, you know, what what do you hope? I mean, you've already said that you're hoping to shine a light on this, to raise awareness, uh, you know, not necessarily expecting change uh, immediately. Uh, but what is it then that's going to keep you doing this? What What do you hope that Londoners take away from it?
2: Um, well, first, I hope that we get some more red light cameras at these major intersections, especially Oxford to Richmond, Richmond and Horton. Those are pretty severe ones that I can see. Wellington Um, Wellington and Horton as well are are bad areas Um, I I would love to see more police enforcement of those areas I know it's not a priority and I it's not something that I blame the police department for I think it's just a matter of resources Um, but what I'd like to see from just everyday Londoners is be aware of what you're doing be aware of every time you're inching into a, a pedestrian crosswalk be aware of every time you're racing against that light trying to save yourself three seconds you're putting someone at risk. And, it, and it, all it takes is for you to stop your vehicle and say, you know what, I can wait.
0: All right. Well, Londoners, listen up to Cheryl Ruth. She has an important message there. And Cheryl, thank you so much for your time this, uh, this afternoon uh, chatting about this issue. And good luck with the rest of the videos. I'll keep my eye out for them. Thanks so much. Now, if you haven't seen Cheryl's videos quite yet, you can by going to her Twitter account and you can see them by going to at Cheryl Will Wright. So that's Cheryl with an S. S-H-E-R-Y-L-W-I-L-L. W R I T E that's on Twitter. Cheryl will write and you can check out the videos that she posts and uh, let her know what you think of them. They've gotten, they've had a lot of views. I mean, her latest one from this morning was posted five hours ago. It's got 319 views. Let me scroll really, really quickly here. Ooh, the one from yesterday has over a thousand views. So clearly people are very interested in uh, watching and seeing what's going on there. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people have shared Cheryl's experiences Coming up after the one thirty news with Jacqueline Labelle, we have Sergeant Sean Harding from London Police to talk about a reminder for drivers about what the rules of the road are when it comes to pedestrian crossings. We'll be right back on London Live. Cheryl Ruth and uh, you know just taking.
3: on your ways, front way, back way, you know that I don't play, streets not safe, but I never run away, even when I'm away, OT, OT, there's never much love when we go OT, I pray to make it back in one piece, I pray, I pray. on your ways front way back way you know that i don't play streets not safe but i never run away even when i'm away ot there's never much love when we go O T. I i pray to make it back in one piece i pray i pray that's why i need a one dance got a fantasy in my hand one more time before i go higher powers taking a hold on me i need a one dance Got a hennessy in my hand one more time before i go higher powers taking a hold on me Baby, I like strength and guidance all that i'm wishing for my friends nobody makes it from my ends. i had to bust up the silence you know you gotta stick by me
0: Welcome back to the program. This is London Live on 980 CFPL Global News Radio. Before the break, we talked to Cheryl Ruth, concerned Londoner and uh, frequent guest on the roundtable programming here on 980 CFPL. She's been posting videos of poor driving behaviour out on London roads, as uh, she herself is a pedestrian quite a lot of the time, uh, walking to work, so she's posted some videos where she feels drivers are not doing what they should. So... I figured I best reach out to London police, who are experts on the matter of traffic enforcement. And Sergeant Sean Harding of the Traffic Management Unit was kind enough to join me on the line this afternoon to talk about what Londoners need to know, both pedestrians and motorists, obviously, about being out on the roads. Sergeant Harding, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. So you've had a chance to take a look at the videos that were posted uh by Cheryl Ruth and uh you know just taking a look at some of the behavior out on the roads there. Um we've we we often see this type of uh relationship where it's a bit of a pedestrians versus uh motorists and sometimes it can get a little tense, but often I mean a lot of this could be solved by just a, a little bit more patience out there.
4: I I absolutely agree. Patience is a A big factor that can kind of solve some of these problems with uh, the interaction between pedestrians, cyclists, and any vulnerable roadway users that are using the road alongside with vehicles.
0: Now, something that uh, I talked with Cheryl about was uh, the fact that everybody out on the roads, whether you're a pedestrian or a motorist, um, you know, we do need to be vigilant of our safety, but especially motorists, because, uh, you know, whether or not they are in the right in terms of whether they've got the right of way to turn or what have you, um, the consequences are much greater for pedestrians if something were heaven forbid to happen.
4: Absolutely, both for pedestrian and cyclists uh, that are again vulnerable roadway users and, and using the roads. We just have to have patience with them, and both uh, both parties have to take have to take care when uh, they're using the roadways.
0: Certainly. And now, you know, just for uh, for for the sake of anyone who's listening, who's maybe not quite sure of what the rules are or they think they do know, but they really don't. (laughs) Could we go over maybe what uh, what people should be mindful of when they are making a turn? And if there are pedestrians there, what are what really are the rules? When can a, a driver turn? When should they pump the brakes? Literally.
4: Well, we have to be careful that uh, when we're, we're doing any turning maneuver, that we do so in safety, and we, we pay attention to not only other vehicles and cyclists that are uh, using the roadway, but also pedestrians. So, as a, a pedestrians in the crosswalk, if the can if the turn can be made uh, safely, then it then it's safe to do so. But uh, if it's going to interfere the movement of, with the movement of the pedestrian, then the driver should be waiting.
0: All right. So because there was, and even myself, like I, I was under the impression that if there was a pedestrian anywhere in the crosswalk, you had to entirely wait for them to clear that crosswalk before you could turn. But that's that applies to prede- pedestrian crossovers, correct?
4: Yes, that's correct. And that's a question we, we do get a fair bit. Um, I was in a crosswalk and someone uh, turned, even though I was at the other end. Uh, but the, the law is actually for crossovers and they need to yield the entire roadway at a pedestrian crossover.
0: All right. See, yeah, see, we're, we're all learning here. See, because at the beginning of the day, I thought it was the other way, but now I have been educated, and I know better now. <laughs> so I thank you for that. And uh, But I guess, like, the good rule of thumb is just when in doubt, just give the person who's crossing that extra space. And obviously we heard that um, that story from Cheryl about the elderly lady who that SUV was kind of like really inching up on her, trying to make their own turn as she was crossing the road. And it's clear that she wasn't able to walk as fast as uh, perhaps other pedestrians uh, could at that point. Um, but I, I guess it, it is just a good rule of thumb. Just use your head, be patient, and it's not worth someone being injured over you getting somewhere six seconds faster.
4: Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. We need to make sure that we take our time, plan ahead, make sure we give ourselves enough time to get where we're going and be patient and a cooperative driver with all roadway users um, as, as we use the roads.
0: Now, something else that Cheryl brought up was um, she'd like to see an increase in the red light cameras in the city. Now, that's not in London police's purview, like you guys aren't in charge of those. Um, but um, have, have officers noticed a decrease or just in general terms, uh, how do you think that these red light cameras have, have impacted uh, drivers in London?
4: I, I think any measure that is going to improve roadway safety is is a good measure and uh, if red light cameras are the ones that get the, is is a piece of equipment that gets roadway users thinking about slowing down making sure you give yourself enough time to stop for a light then i think it's a fantastic uh, piece of safety equipment
0: and if anyone sees an egregious example, or what they think is a really bad, uh, you know, example of someone misbehaving out on the roads, if if they see a bad interaction with a pedestrian, uh, what should they do? Should they reach out to London Police? Call maybe the non-emergency number.
4: If this is an ongoing complaint, we need to send officers out to it. And if something is happening now, then we need to send officers out to it. So if if it reaches a threshold that this needs to be addressed immediately, and I would encourage them to call 911. Um, but if it's uh, something that's witnessed and now passed, then then do call into our non, non-emergency number. Um, the issue when it comes to us following up is, do we have a plate? Once we have a plate, can we identify the driver? And, and that is sometimes problematic uh, for, for court purposes. So I know a lot of uh, people who do call in um, are looking for charges, but a lot of time it's just not possible because we're not able in a lot of circumstances to identify the driver.
0: Fair enough. So that's, uh, I think, sage advice, though. Do what you can. If it's an emergency, call 911. If not, call a non-emergency number and uh, try and get as much information as you can because that's helpful for officers. Absolutely. All right. Well, Sergeant Sean Harding, thank you so much for your time today and for giving us a little bit of insight into the uh, London Police view of these types of issues. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so there you have it, London. Pay attention, slow down, pack your patience. All the things that we hear from the 980 CFPL traffic uh, center often every single day. Uh, You'll hear more about traffic updates coming up during the afternoon News Wheel programming. But seriously, uh, when you're out there on the roads, just take your time. It really is not worth the six extra seconds you may have to wait or whatever it is. Because as both Sergeant Harding and uh, Cheryl have pointed out, pedestrians are at a disadvantage when it comes to safety out there. We in our cars have a lot of protection, whereas pedestrians do not. So err on the side of caution just to be on the safe side. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be chatting about a special event that's happening tonight at the London Convention Centre, the Women of Excellence 2019 Gala that's put on by the YMCA. We're going to talk to a representative about what's happening tonight over there. We'll be right back on London Live. Welcome back to the show It is your Wednesday afternoon edition. I'm filling in for the lovely Mike Stubbs, hardest working man in radio. He's on vacation this week. He is back on Tuesday after the Victoria Day long weekend. I know we're all very much looking forward to the long weekend. Who isn't? It's always a good time. On the line now, though, we have Heidi Peaver from YMCA in the region in London, because there is a very special event going on tonight over at the London Convention Centre, and that is the Women of Excellence Gala, and it's to honour people in our community and you know people who have ties to London for their work that they've done and their contributions to the community. And let's chat with Heidi about all the excellent and exciting things that are happening tonight. Heidi, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you so much. Happy to uh, be on the show. We
0: appreciate it. Well, hey, it's, it's a great event, and I know that uh, Chorus Radio London is uh, going to have a, a delegation there tonight. I, in fact, will be there for the, for the gala. I'm very excited to uh, see all the honorees and to hear their stories. Uh, first of all, Heidi, maybe give me a little bit of, um, of a history of, of the gala and, and what it's all about. Why are we coming together tonight for this?
5: Oh, absolutely. The Y has been hosting this gala for close to 40 years and it really is uh, to honour exceptional women in our community in a number of different areas from arts, culture and education to business and professions to health, science, technology, sports, fitness and recreation. We've got uh, eight different awards that we are awarding this evening. And it really um, is a fantastic uh, event for the community. But also what this event does tonight is it raises funds for kids and families in our communities um, and allows them to be part of the why in terms of our programs, our services, our camps, uh, swimming lessons. Three out of ten kids in our communities um, don't have the financial needs uh, and families to be part of the why. And so we raise funds every year through our, through our Strong Kids campaign, and this is one of the events, to ensure that these kids and families have access to our programs and services uh, through this fundraising
0: Fantastic. And I, I want to come back to all of that programming in a moment. But first, if you can, Heidi, tell me uh, about some of the nominees, because we have we have a few big names on that list. And now and obviously everyone who is being um, uh, honoured tonight is, is has made a significant contribution. But there are there's a, a few names there that uh, people will will automatically twig to their ears will be perked because they will recognize them.
1: Oh,
5: for sure. I'd say likely somebody that um, people would recognize uh, for sure is Heather Hiscox. She's in the business and professions category. Many people see her uh, on the TV uh, in her uh, role in our communities. Um, Another amazing individual is Dr. Bertha Garcia from uh, Western. She's an incredible uh, physician and educator. Um, Deb Harvey, people would know from uh, the Grand Theater. Um, Kathy Longo is an amazing Community volunteer, well known in the community. Chantal Feldman is an extraordinary entrepreneur in our community. And Christine Stapleton is our representative for sport and fitness. And she's an incredible background in basketball and coaching and women's athletics. And then to top it off, we have an amazing individual. Her name is Janet Stewart. She's been practicing law for 50 years at Learners in our community and is an amazing uh, mentor and practitioner um, uh, within the law community and uh, within London.
0: That's fantastic. I love events like this because we get to shine a light on individuals who have made just enormous contributions to their fields and to the community at large, but who sometimes don't have a lot of, I guess, um, uh, p- publicity around them, like you know, you learn about individuals who have been working. At, like in the case of Janet Stewart, who's been working for 50 years, uh, but people may not have heard of her if they're not within her circle, like in the law in the law community here in town, or or you know what I mean. Like so, this is for this sure. is a great opportunity to learn about the people who are doing fantastic things
5: in in and around London. For sure, these women are all incredibly accomplished, but what draws them all together is they're incredibly humble. And uh, they want to teach and mentor other uh, people and young women in our community to, um, you know, blaze their own trail. And the other amazing thing we're doing this evening is we have over 100 young women attending this event for free. They want, we want them to uh, listen to these stories and the speeches from these amazing award recipients and hopefully be inspired Um, by what they're hearing and what they're seeing tonight. So these young women are from various high schools across the region, and they have mentors from Fanshawe and Western at each of the tables, young women as well. And uh, we're just really excited by this whole dynamic.
0: Certainly, and you know it's very important. And I, I mean, I don't have to tell you this, Heidi, because you know it. Um, but it's it's so important for young people uh, of 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 all genders and uh, to have people to look up to and mentors uh, who they can who they can um, you know reach out to for advice or just you know follow their path if if that is something that they're interested in. But especially so with with young women, it's fantastic to see uh, you know all of the positive examples that this evening will bring forward, and uh, you know show them what the paths before them could be that, you know, maybe they have never thought of a career in law or perhaps they've, you know, never thought of broadcasting and, you know, they'll have a chance maybe to, to speak with uh, Heather Hiscox. It, it's just fantastic to see that there's so much that could be put out before them on their paths forward just from this evening.
5: Oh, absolutely. We're, we're thrilled. We just did a bit of a run through of some of the speeches, uh, dress rehearsal for the women who will be speaking this evening. Their stories are incredible And nothing was given to them. They had to uh, build their careers and their businesses from scratch, just like uh, most successful people do. And their stories about um, sacrifice and chance and dedication are really inspiring and quite eye-opening. When you see people at a professional level at this stage in their life, you often think that they have always um, been in this kind of position. Tonight, you're going to hear stories about people starting from nothing. And um, and working through their experiences and using their experiences to propel them into the you know into the person that they are today and and into achieving the accomplishments they have. It's it's really inspiring. It um, it, it absolutely energizes everybody who uh, attends this evening. And we appreciate all of our attendees and our sponsors and our nominators for making this a success for us.
0: You know the whole uh, that whole theme of of the ability to start from not very much and you know achieve such great success I think is uh, so on point with YMCA and YMCA of Southwestern Ontario because you really do work with people at all within all walks of life and you help to uh, you know help especially young people with the programming the Strong Kids program this is exactly what the mandate is is to help individuals achieve the success that they want so I think it's it's a really perfect partnership in terms of this event and 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 the theme of it and and everything. It just matches up very, very nicely.
5: I'm so glad you said that. It's a perfect segue and you're absolutely right. The Y is here for the community to be really an amazing um, support system for kids and families, giving them the opportunity for first, you know, learning to swim, learning leadership courses, learning to play basketball. Um, learning to uh, enjoy the why and understand that it's a safe, inclusive place for people. And uh, we know for a fact that the Y is a great, um, you know, starting step for kids and families to help them, uh, you know, enjoy a, a healthy lifestyle in whatever manner that they can and to, you know, build confidence in a really inclusive and safe environment. We're so thrilled to be able to do this in all of our communities. Absolutely, and I find that um
0: you know people sometimes don't realize the resources that are available to them in the community, as you said, uh, the strong kids program is there to make sure that little ones are able to access programs regardless of their ability to pay, as you already as you mentioned there heidi um but maybe let's talk a little bit more about it because as I said, sometimes people don't realize that these resources are there and they can have access to programming that they figured they wouldn't be able to to access
5: for sure. The Y has a really great system where uh, right now we're supporting about three out of every 10, you know, child or uh, family uh, in in within the Y. And they have an, an opportunity to, in a very confidential yet transparent way for them um, to work with our staff to ensure that they be, be part of our programs and services, um, you know, regardless of inability to pay. And we make it work for them. So if somebody is interested in joining the Y but they're concerned that maybe I won't be able to afford it or something like that, they just need to um, connect with one of our staff members at the front desk and have a conversation. And our staff members are very well trained to chat with our um, members or proposed members and they will uh, make it work for them. And that's that's what we're all about is we want to make sure we're inclusive and open. um, And uh, it's a huge part of uh, the core values of the Y. Absolutely. Now, Heidi, uh, just as we kind of
0: wrap up here, I know you are very busy with your preparations for this evening, uh, but if anyone is interested in making a donation to these uh, programs, Strong Kids program, can they do that or how can they? Is, are there tickets left for tonight? I feel like this is such a big deal that it's, it's probably sold out, isn't it?
5: we're we're pretty much close to being sold out. We've got uh over or close to 1100 people uh here tonight. That's a pretty typical audience for us at this event, which is incredible. I mean, the community just rises to the occasion every year to celebrate these incredible award recipients. Um, and also if people were interested in making a gift to the Y, honestly, if they just entered into their their, you know, Google search engine, um, Strong Kids or YMCA of uh, Southwestern Ontario, The uh, Strong Kids campaign will pop up and uh, they can make an online donation right there or they can always contact us or contact me through the Y as well. The community is so generous and so supportive of uh, this charity and I think they really understand that charities like the Y and others in the community really help um, build a great foundation for kids and families and just make a stronger community. Well, Heidi, I wish you
0: all the success in the world tonight. I know that uh, this evening will be uh, wonderful, as it always is. I'm very excited to, to be there and to take in all the, all the honorees and, and everything, all the inspirational words that they have for the, for the audience. Looking forward to it very much tonight at the London Convention Centre. Heidi, thank you again for your time today, and congratulations on another successful year.
5: Oh, Thank you so much, and we can't uh, thank you enough for your support. Look forward to seeing you tonight. You can have a blast.
0: Absolutely. Thanks again, Heidi. All right. Take care. Goodbye. bye Bye Bye-bye. All right. So you've heard it there. If you want to make a contribution to the YMCA of Southwestern Ontario, all you got to do, fire up Google, type it in, go to their website, and there are lots of links in terms of how you can help the Y and also the Strong Kids program. We need to take a quick break. We will be right back on 980 CFPL. Okay, we are coming up to the top of the hour. That means news with the lovely Jacqueline LaBelle. She'll get you updated on all the latest headlines, what's going on here in London and around the world after the news... We're going to talk to Dr. Natalie Rydiger of the University of Manitoba. She is studying the potential impacts of a sugar tax. So we'll talk about that, what that's going on and all about that. After that, we're going to talk to Heather Urex-West of Global News. She's a correspondent for Global National, and she's taking part in a health care series this day. This is part three, and we're looking at mental health with children and uh, difficulties in accessing proper care. All that is coming up after the news with Jacqueline LaBelle on London Live. Welcome back to hour two of the Wednesday edition of London Live. Mike Stubbs is on vacation this week. Well deserved. Hardest working man in radio. He is back on Tuesday. Monday, we are off for the Victoria Day weekend, holiday. Woohoo. That's very exciting. Long weekend. Hopefully, the weather cooperates. It doesn't look very good right now. I told you I wouldn't give you all the details. I'd wait for John Wilson to do it. Let him take your anger. (laughs) Don't shoot the messenger. I don't want to tell you that it's not necessarily perhaps going to be the nicest. I didn't say it, except I just did. Anyway, tune into John Wilson. He will give you all of the official information of how your weekend is shaping up. Plus, it's only Wednesday. There's lots of time for conditions to change between now and then. Don't worry. Fingers crossed. I don't know. I don't know how many of you have chosen to go camping. We are going to talk about that, actually, later in the week, about, uh, Things to be aware of if you are heading out to campsites this long weekend. But that's neither here nor there. Right now, what we're going to talk about, well, actually, I mean, camping makes me think of marshmallows, which are just basically like gooey sugar. That's essentially what they are. And that plays well into our next interview, which is about sugar, if you will, sugary drinks. Do you often drink a lot of pop or do you go to Tim Hortons, our Starbucks, and uh, get your coffee with a bunch of sugars or you get like a latte, a macchiato, anything with those lots of sweetness, which is oh so delicious, but not very good for you? Well... There is a researcher at the University of Manitoba, Dr. Natalie Reidegger, and she is doing some research on how people feel about a possible sugar tax. So that would be an additional uh, tax on the purchase of products like pop or uh, other items. She's going to explain exactly what it would, what potentially it would apply to. And she joins me live on the line now. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Thanks for having me. So the idea of a sugar tax has been kind of bandied about in a few places. I know New York City has looked at uh, you know, upping the price for sugary drinks. Uh, different uh, j- uh, areas across North America are looking more into this. Uh, tell us a little bit about your research and where exactly you're concentrating it.
6: Sure. So my research uh, is taking place mostly in Manitoba. I've also done some research in India. Uh, and with colleagues in Michigan. So this is really a, uh, as you mentioned, it's being instituted in many different um, countries and jurisdictions around the world. Um, and uh, I think it's important to consider the various contexts with uh, in which this tax may be introduced. And so my work right now is specifically, I'm interested in uh, the Canadian context.
0: And so when we're talking about um A a sugar tax. Maybe give people a little bit of an idea of of what you're looking at. What maybe a model that might be under consideration uh, in terms of a percentage on on like how much would we be looking at in terms of an increase potentially?
6: Well, my research isn't specifically looking at um, the increase or or the type of increase. I'm more interested in looking at people's opinions. But for background information, the World Health Organization has recommended uh, between a twenty or thirty percent. Tax. So, this might translate to about, you know, between 40, maybe 40 cents on a can uh, of Coke. And, and, and it would vary according to, you know, whether it's a two liter pop or um, a smaller bottle. So, that's, uh, that's, I guess, a brief description of a tax. Uh, and it varies in different countries in terms of what types of drinks are included. Most people tend to think of pop as the main drink that uh, is sugar-sweetened, but there are of course, you know, Tang, Kool-Aid, there are also other drinks like chocolate milk that sometimes are included in a tax in in countries and sometimes aren't, so there are these bubble drinks, Um, those could be something like a Frappuccino too, which tend not to be taxed, but are highly consumed in our society that are sugar sweetened.
0: That's you know what it's interesting hearing you talk about uh, all the different types of drinks like as you said sugar sugary drinks we often think of pop immediately but yeah like bringing up a frappuccino there like that's perfect talking about uh, sort of drinks that have like those empty calories that really aren't helping you they're not nutritious uh, but they do taste good and it's I guess that this tax at the very least you know it's it's trying to raise awareness of the sugars that we're putting into our bodies Um, and I think it would be quite the education uh, for people. to realize, why is this so much more expensive? Oh, it's because it's really not that good for me and I should think twice about it.
6: Yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons why uh, the tax is being considered is, is to, to bring awareness. I do think generally there is quite a good awareness in Canada of the health effects of sugary drinks, and we've actually seen that sugar-sweetened beverage intake has gone down in Canada by about 27% in the last 10 years in terms of the classic uh, pop that we think of. Um, so, so education is one aspect uh, of it. I think the other part, and, and one that I'm particularly interested in, is the impacts on equity and, and social justice, because we know not the patterns of consuming sugary drinks in the population is not um, uniform. We tend to see a higher intake among low-income populations, and so I think that's something that we need to uh, explore further, and that's really where where my interest lies.
0: Well, certainly, let's dive more into that then, because uh, you know I, I would love to you know learn a bit more about what you've what you've gleaned so far from your research in terms of, uh, as you said earlier, the reaction to these policies. Uh, what have you learned from people that you've spoken to? How are they reacting to uh, the idea that this may be implemented?
6: Well, we've just started uh, this phase of the research in, in Canada, so I, I can't really share what people have said, but I mean even just in my informal discussions, I can tell you that it's pretty highly divisive um, in terms of people's reactions to attacks. Um, And and then the other aspect is also small businesses, and and that's another interest uh, of mine in the research. Um, And and what we found in other countries that have implemented attacks is that uh, small businesses tend not to be very supportive and also tend to be um, hurt by the implementation of the tax um, and and it really depends on the context. and so we need to think about cross-border shopping uh, depending on whether this type of tax is implemented provincially or federally um, and then also thinking about um, jurisdictional differences on and off reserve and 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 all the different considerations that come uh, with that. And so I think, it's very, very complicated, um, and uh, it's important to get you know different people's opinions because the impacts will be different depending on um, people's circumstances.
0: That's absolutely true. And, and in most things in life, in all things, uh, it's, it's, you know, I'm always hopeful that we will see an increase in consultation, uh, across uh, multiple communities to make sure that we are, uh, being as, as, uh, inclusive as possible and as representative as possible, uh, to make sure that we're not leaving anyone out, uh, in terms of impacts. So it's, it's fantastic, uh, to hear of, of your work and, and making sure we're, we're, you know, talking with the right people, uh, to make sure that no one is left behind in that regard. Uh, natalie can we talk a little bit about um, why is it for any you know for listeners that um, as you mentioned it seems to be uh, lower income communities that uh, you know do take in these these beverages more so than others perhaps um, for anyone wondering about why that may be can you perhaps elaborate a little bit
6: sure well i think that that is also quite complicated i mean some of it has to do with the types of drinks and that's why i mentioned it earlier um, so we know that drinks like, um, you know, pop, but then also uh, Kool-Aids and drinks like that tend to be consumed more so by low-income communities. Uh, And the reason for that has to do partially with price, but also, you know, there's cultural differences in terms of class and how we eat. It's not that uh, wealthier Canadians don't consume sugar. Um, Certainly, we see less sugar, but we've also seen, like I talked about, the Frappuccinos um, and, and sugar and coffee, actually that's the most commonly consumed sugar sweetened beverage. And there is uh, data to suggest that those types of drinks are consumed more so by higher income people, but we tend not to think of them as quote unquote unhealthy or bad. Um, so there are there are social and cultural um, you know factors that we need to consider too in terms of how we view things and then how policies are then implemented. So that's another aspect of my research, and I think we just need to be mindful and consider these factors. So it's really complicated
0: certainly it would be and uh, I, I think it's very interesting uh, how even in uh, the types of sugar we consume there seems to be a, like a class breakdown of it and 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 how that how that works out it's it's fascinating to to hear you speak about it Natalie and and I'm very much looking forward to uh, keeping tabs on on your work and the and the study as it goes along thank you so much for your time today and uh, sharing with us some of the insight that you've gleaned so far from your work and uh, we appreciate it and we look forward to hearing more from you in the future about it. Thanks so much for having me. Now, when we come back, we are going to chat with Heather Yorick's West. She is a global correspondent, Global News national correspondent, and she's going to chat with us about a series that Global is doing on healthcare in Canada and today is part 3 and they're looking at mental health care for children and the struggles that families go through to make sure their kids are getting the care that they need that's coming up after the break on London Live. Welcome back to the program. I'm not proud to tell you this London. After an interview about sugar what did I do during the break? Oh, I ran down the hall and had a cookie. (laughs) We have uh, a new member of our staff at 980 CFPL, Kelly. She's sitting across from me right now in the producer's booth with the Wonderful, Andrew Graham. And uh, we have a tradition here at Chorus Radio London that when you start new on the job, you bring in cookies. And Kelly was fantastic and she did such. And I I had one cookie, (laughs) a white chocolate macadamia nut cookie, and I'm not sorry. (laughs) It was delicious. So, Kelly, thank you. (laughs) And welcome to the team. We are very happy to have you here. Speaking of the Global News Radio team... We are next going to chat with one of our Global National correspondents, and that's Heather Urex-West. And she's taking part in this series that Global is doing looking at healthcare across Canada. Yesterday, they were talking about dental care. Today, it has to do with mental health services for children. And this series is, is pretty harrowing in, in terms of what we've heard, of the pressures that, are, that families face. And uh, Heather joins me live on the line right now. Heather, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon to to talk about this series and the latest installment on mental health, especially when it comes to children. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Heather, tell us a little bit about uh, what you've discovered so far in talking to the the families that have been impacted by this as they're searching out healthcare for for their for their children.
7: Yeah, I really that it's. Very, very difficult to access mental health care, and depending on where you live, uh, there's just a a great disparity um, uh, with what's available, what's covered, um, the kinds of waiting times people are facing, and that really some of these families are having to pay uh, significant amounts of money out of pocket just to ensure that their kids are getting the mental health care that they need. Certainly, and you know there have been
0: in the in the coverage that you've put together, uh, the stories that you've that you've compiled, and and the audio that we've heard from some of these families. I, I just can't imagine being in a position, uh, you know, where you know you have to help your child, but also understanding that financial pressure. Like it, it must just put them in
7: such a bind. Yeah. When- of the families we spoke with, the Sparlings, they're from um, Oakville, Ontario. And uh, Michelle Sparling was quite frank that, you know, they are a family that um, have the means to afford some of these out-of-pocket costs, but she said that this is why she's um, decided to become an advocate on this issue, because her heart really breaks for the families that don't have these kinds of resources. She estimates that over six years, uh, her family spent about $30,000 in costs associated with finding counseling and travel costs to different programs. And even when her son and daughter got into publicly funded programs, there were additional costs that were out of pocket, whether it be for medication or additional counselors that weren't covered by the public system. So when you're looking at that kind of bill, uh, it's clear that not all families can afford uh, to be paying that kind of of money out of pocket. So what happens then to those children? when they are facing a significant, serious mental illness and just can't afford to get the care that they need.
0: I can't imagine and, and I'm glad that, you know, there are families uh, that are, are kind of taking up the torch of this issue to, to bring it more to the forefront because, you know, honestly, we've seen a real rise in discussion about the importance of treating mental health issues, um, especially when it comes to bullying or, you know, other other um, issues of, say, body image, that sort of thing over, over the last, you know, decade or so. I feel like there's been a real push to improve uh, the way we think about these things and the way we talk about them in, in just the public uh, circle. Um, but when it comes to actually getting down to the work of making sure people have recourse and and a place to um, you know work towards healing that's a whole other kettle of fish isn't it what are experts talking to you about and what are they saying what's their reaction to this need for increased resources and access to it
7: yeah well there is some good news in that you know some cities across the country some communities are doing a really great job there's you know, these hub models that are being built that you can go in and you can find a collaborative team of counsellors and psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers and, and, you know, really um, they're able to to provide uh, a whole suite of care for for people. But, you know, that's not available everywhere. And and that's the problem is that, you know, if you're from a rural area, if you're from a First Nations community, you really are limited to what you have access to. So what the Canadian Mental Health Association is calling for is for, you know, these, these programs that are showing to be to be successful, for them to be scaled and and replicated across the country so that everybody has access. The other thing they're calling for is just more funding. Canada spends about 7% of its healthcare spending dollars go to mental health. Now, when we compare that to the other G7 countries, that's the bottom of the list, six out of seven. So we have a long way to go uh, in terms of how much money and how many resources we're putting towards mental health care. And when you think about what uh, all the other um, aspects of society that are impacted when people's mental health care aren't uh, isn't properly taken care of, you know, our education, our justice system, um, all kinds of things. So if we're, if we're falling down in this area, then there are far-reaching um, consequences. So this is something that really uh, needs to be a priority uh, moving forward
0: certainly and it's interesting that you bring up uh the other uh I guess the the hub programs that are starting up that you're talking about in the other communities um in London we have the FEMAP uh program which is through LHSC our 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 local hospitals first episode mood and anxiety program and it really does concentrate on uh individuals who are of the younger generation and trying to get them the help they need early on Uh, so it's great to see and to hear as you've described that there are other models like that across the country and uh hopefully that will you know uh you know, get carried forward and and, and kind of catch on in in other areas that are are underfunded, excuse me, uh, because it it can be very difficult for people who are in more isolated areas uh, to access those types of uh, resources.
7: Yeah, and the pediatric programs are are so important because I think 70% of all mental illnesses uh, begin manifesting in childhood. So if we can really start to teach kids these mental wellness skills and resiliency skills, coping skills early on, um, and this is something the Canadian Mental Health Association is pushing for as well, we could potentially prevent a lot of these problems, depression, anxiety, um, in the future. So it's something that's really lacking right now, but, but could go a long way if, if this kind of got rolling right across the country.
0: Certainly, and I think it would also go a long way to reducing stigma if, from a very young age, children are taught that, you know what, it's okay uh, that, you know, you're, you're not feeling like yourself right now, or that you you are experiencing problems. We're going to figure it out together as a family, and there are resources in this community to, uh, you know, help you and, and,
7: and make you feel less alone. Yeah, because, I mean, depression and anxiety, I think we often think about that as, a, as an adult problem, but... A lot of kids are experiencing significant amounts of stress. Going back to the the Sparlings, her son was just seven when he started to be uh, just almost crippled with anxiety, just so afraid to go to school, afraid that something was going to happen to his mom, uh, and that kind of snowballed. So this is definitely not an issue that just impacts adults, and it is something that we need to be thinking about when we think about pediatric wellness and uh, health care.
0: Absolutely. Well, Heather, I'm excited to, uh, you know, hear more about reaction to this series, specifically this uh, portion of it. It's an important topic. And, and thank you so much for, for taking some time this afternoon to talk with us about it and for all of your hard work on the series. Thanks so much for having me. OK, we need to take a quick break for the 2.30 edition of News with Jacqueline LaBelle. We will be back on London Live after the news. Welcome back to the program. We are in the last half hour of your Wednesday edition of London Live. I swear, every day this show goes so fast. It seems like I just sit down, I look over at Andrew in the producer's booth, and I go, okay, here we go. And then two seconds later, poof, we're <laughs> near the end. I don't know how it happens, but it does. I just talk so much, I suppose. <laughs> Shocker to anyone who knows me. Oh, Jess talks a lot? Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of the perfect gig, I suppose. Anywho before the break, we were talking about uh, mental health resources for children and the difficulties that families sometimes have in accessing them. Now, this next interview that uh, we have is is not the same thing, but it is somewhat related in terms of making sure that families have the resources they need. Now, Western researchers uh, have been working on this study for quite some time now with colleagues uh, I believe across the country and it has to do with parental leaves for adoptive parents and the importance of making sure that families have the time they need to bond properly when they are bringing in uh, a new child into their families and just making sure that they're setting themselves up for success, that the system is setting up families for success. The name of this study is called Time to Attach. And joining me on the line live right now is Professor Carolyn McLeod of the Departments of Philosophy and Women's Studies and Feminist Research at West. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon to talk about the results of the study. My pleasure. So I guess to start off, uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the inspiration for this work that you've done with uh, a number of other uh, researchers who were involved in the project. And uh, what did you learn when you were going through this data?
8: So I think the inspiration was, um, you know, in part to sort of raise awareness about the kinds of challenges that people face when they bring children into their home um, that they didn't give birth to. Uh, So these are families that that are formed through adoption or what's called kin or customary care. Uh, so we're hoping to raise awareness about that, but also hone in on a particular issue, which is the parental leave benefits that are available to these families. Importantly, they don't receive the same amount of benefits as people do who have given birth to their children. Uh, so we wanted that, that issue is, you know, it's, people are passionate about it in, within these communities, and we wanted to raise awareness about that and really advocate for change in that area for these families.
0: Now, what are, I guess, the, the current rates for that leave uh, in terms of, uh, you know, allowing adoptive parents to have that bonding time with their children?
8: Yeah, so currently they're eligible or they can be eligible for what the federal government calls just parental benefits. Uh, So they can take these benefits for 35 weeks or for 61 weeks if they take them in their extended form. But they are not eligible for what the government calls maternity benefits, um, which, you know, is understandable given that these benefits are available to women to recover from pregnancy and birth. So what we argue in the study is that similar sorts of benefits, um, not maternity benefits. We don't want to call them that, but what we call attachment benefits should be available to these other families um, for the same number of weeks and at the same benefit rate as maternity benefits. So we, we call them attachment benefits because attachment is is the attachment of the child to their new parent or caregiver is a challenge, can be a serious challenge for these families, especially while the ch- the child is transitioning into the family.
0: Certainly. And, uh, you know, given, uh, you know, sometimes the uh, individual experiences of the children, uh, they would vary vastly in terms of what they've experienced in their life before coming to their new families. And uh, I would imagine that having that proper time to spend with their uh, new caregivers, their new parents, uh, would go a long way to making sure that match is successful.
8: Yeah, yeah, and I you know, we think ultimately, you know, by giving these families more time. Uh we, we do talk w- about what the cost would be of this to the government. We estimate the cost to be around uh 18 million dollars. Uh for all the all of the families across Canada that that adopt or bring uh build their families through kin can- or customary care. Um, so we do believe you know there is some cost to the government for sure but we also believe that there would be savings if we're focusing on money here there would be savings because um, it's more likely that these these placements would would succeed if the, the they're able to solidify those relationships in the first year of the placement and it's less likely that they would would dissolve or disrupt um, And the child the children unfortunately this does happen in some cases they simply return to child welfare.
0: And now, would having that increased time and those uh, amplified benefits, you know, would, it, would that help then to, to ease uh, the state of crisis that the report kind of identifies with within the child welfare, welfare system in Canada?
8: We hope that it will. I mean, we we did do a large study. Um, We surveyed parents, caregivers across Canada, and we did um, learn from the study that a significant number of them um, would have considered adopting, say, a sibling group instead of a single child, or a child with complex needs, if they had had more time to spend with the child at the beginning of the placement. So those numbers suggest to us that there would likely be more placements if the government were to to increase the the benefits for these parents and caregivers,
0: it really is a ripple effect right if If one portion of the system changes, mm-hmm. it has mm-hmm. uh, you know a, a, almost like a, a tsunami or a tidal wave effect in terms of what it impacts down the down the line.
8: Yeah, we think so. I mean, it seems like a small change. It's just you know adding 15 more weeks of benefits for for these families, um, but we do think that that could have and likely would have a very significant impact. So we do cite some and some studies that suggest that that first year of a placement is really crucial. Uh, so giving giving these families just that extra three months, we think can have a significant impact, and we also think it just it just equalizes the leave available for both. types of families, birth families and non-birth families, and and we think that's just appropriate on, on equality grounds
0: certainly and, and you know it's obviously well recognized the importance of the first year of of life for a newborn baby and and that impact mm. on on having that bonding time with its uh, with its mother and uh, you know it's its parents in general um, who you know and uh, whoever is at home with that baby um, it's important to, to foster that type of a relationship and bond and make sure that uh, you know things are, are progressing as they should so it, it logically makes sense that the same would be uh, for an adoptive relationship and 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 often there are there are challenges there that wouldn't be experienced in a in a biological family situation so certainly it's it's great to see that uh you know there's an increased um effort and push for this type of recognition and having those benefits there
8: yeah and I think, you know, you've got to, what's important to recognize with these children is that initial bond, that bond with their birth parent has been um, disrupted or in some cases just severed entirely. Uh, and the impact that can have on children and what's called their attachment security is, is profound. It's usually, usually profound, and that itself has a ripple effect on the child's development uh, and their ability later on to, to really be, you know, successful, to be autonomous, as we discuss in the report, um, to really be, you know, healthy and productive individuals later in life. So we talk about all the psychological literature that, that backs up that sort of claim. Um, so, you know, it's just about acknowledging what, what these children have been through, which in many cases is just, you know, really, really significant, has had a serious impact on their their well-being. And it's trying to give them the time to recover from that and develop that kind of bond again which they really need to to succeed we think.
0: Well Professor Carolyn McLeod thank you so much for your time (laughs) in in talking about this study today I think it's fascinating work and uh, I'm so glad that we've had a chance to delve into it a little bit here and uh, explain to listeners what's going on and what your findings were thank you so much.
8: Thank you Jess.
0: Okay we need to take a quick break but before we go I'm going to ask you something, London, and I want to hear from you. We are opening up the phone lines for the first time this week. I want to hear from you specifically if you have ever boycotted a team or products from a city when that city's team, if you will, has gone up against your favorite team. What I'm getting at is that Toronto and the Raptors are facing off against Milwaukee in their Game 1 tonight. And there's a radio station in Milwaukee that is banning Drake from its airwaves for the duration of the series. So I want to hear from you. You can give us a call at 519-643-2222. 643-2222. Or 1-866-354-8255. Or you can even tweet me. I'm at Jess Brady 980 and uh, let me know, have you ever boycotted anyone or anything because your team, your sports team of choice, was going up against their sports team? Yeah, yeah I want to know. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. We are London Live on 980 CFPL Global News Radio. It is just the last... Ten-ish minutes of the show, and I figured we get our groove on. Producer Andrew Graham is playing some Drake for us, some One Dance. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should just have all of the shows with uh, music beds of Drake <laughs> underneath. Why not? It'll be fun. Maybe on Friday, on my last day, and then they can boot me out. Give me, put the cane in into the booth, and just hook me right out of there. <laughs> Now, the reason why we are playing some Drake underneath as we talk here is because Drake has now become the subject of a boycott from 103.7 KISS FM in Milwaukee. And the reason for that is because the Milwaukee Bucks are going up against the Toronto Raptors in the NBA Eastern Conference Finals. Game one is tonight. Craig Needles was actually talking with Global's Alan Carter this morning. Uh, He's heading to Milwaukee for the game. It's very excited. Alan apparently is a massive Raptors fan. And uh, he goes to a lot of the games here in Toronto. So that's great for him. He's very excited about it. Uh, so he'll be reporting on that for Global from from Milwaukee and all the comings and goings. But here's the deal with 1037 KISS FM. They are taking a break from Drake in the hopes that it'll help the Bucks uh, beat out the Toronto Raptors. Good luck. Come on. I'm hoping for for Toronto to do really well, especially for the blood pressure of all the uh, sports fans in the 980 CFPL newsroom. They are very excited about this series and, and how the Raptors are doing. So it's it's kind of mean. They're giving Drake the silent treatment. I mean, I'm sure he's not going to be offended, although Drake has had a tough uh, sports season I mean, not just one sport, obviously, like with a bunch of different uh, sports that have been going on. They call it the Drake curse. Apparently, when he wears the jersey of the team that he really supports, (laughs) then they lose, which is not fun. So I think he's he's, uh, you know, taking the curse, quote unquote, with uh, a lot of goodwill. Um, He's uh, I think he wore like the jersey of what the 76ers in the last series, which Toronto won in game seven with that amazing shot. Um, so yeah, this this radio station is boycotting Drake for the duration of the series. So mean. So mean. But I wanted to know from you, Londoners, I wanted you to call me. Call in, listeners. I haven't talked to you yet all week. I want to hear from you. Uh, give me a shout, 643-2222, or you can tweet at me, at Jess Brady 980 or you could even email me if you really wanted to. That's Jess at 980cfpl.ca. I want to know have you ever boycotted something from another city because they are the home city of the team that you don't like and you're heading up against them into a playoff series or whatever? I have a tweet from Andy, loyal listener, Andy Pepliak. He says, I've never boycotted anything from the opposing city. I've actually gone into the enemy camp to see my team as the visitors. I went to the Jays in Detroit last year. That's very brave of you, Andy. Actually, as a, as a young pup, <laughs> when I was about 18, uh, my parents got tickets for um, the nights when they were in their series against Kitchener. So we're talking 2005, and my best friend and I, Amanda, we we had to kind of split up for my parents. My parents had two tickets in one section, and um, my bestie, Amanda, and I had tickets in another, and we went to the Kitchener rink, the Kitchener burn, if you will, and I would say that the crowd in Kitchener was extremely nice, they were, they were very kind to us, we were just very excited to be there (laughs) in general big london knights fans um and yeah so andy i'm with you that's a it's a brave move but i support your choice because when your team is is out there you have to support them so yeah if you have any stories of boycotting of uh another city or a product or whatever and they didn't they didn't like because of because of a matchup, and you don't want to support them for the duration of whatever the series is i get it now funnily enough in the last, uh, in this last season of the Knights that just ended, uh, especially in the playoffs, um, our FM 96, our brother station just down the hallway, had a bet with one of the Guelph radio stations um, about their series there. And it's a lot of fun rivalry can come about uh, from these types of um, series, playoff or otherwise. It's nice when you get camaraderie. I've heard of bets where... Um, the mayors of different cities. That's happened with London previously, where they where they, they set a wager and, and then the loser has to wear the other team's jersey in council chambers for their next meeting. And I think there's been beer cases of beer that have been exchanged between uh, cities with breweries. I think Labats in London has been have been in on that before. So it's all sorts of fun with these rivalries that come up. But I will say people take their sports Very, very seriously and for good reason. You know, like it's it's something that we all get very passionate about, depending on on whether you really enjoy sports or not. I mean, that's fair. If it's not your not your jam so much, that's cool. I understand. Or, you know, you enjoy it, but it's not something that you really, you know, get too, too passionate about. Your blood pressure isn't going through the roof. I know that uh, the guys in the newsroom uh, are often very, very um, they put a lot of attention on the games when they watch. I should say that Craig Needles especially, and it's tough, especially for him because I mean he he's a big hockey fan as we know, Leafs Nation. He's a big Jays fan. Mm-hmm. He's a big Raptors fan too. So he's got oh of course football. My gosh, and with the Denver Broncos. I mean, so he he's really covered by <laughs> almost every single sport. So Stacy, his wife deals with a lot of enthusiasm when it comes to watching sports. But, I mean, that's cool. It's his thing. It's his jam. He enjoys it. So if you have any any thoughts on boycotts of any kind, feel free. We, we got Andy's take on it, and I thank him for it. That came in via Twitter. Thank you very much, sir. All right. Well, ruminate on it. And when we come back, we're going to talk about spam phone calls. Where is the craziest place you've ever had uh, a spam call Like if you have like on your call display on your cell phone or your home phone, did you ever get a number and think, where the heck is that from? And then Googled it. Well, it's funny because producer Andrew Graham and I just got uh, like basically twin phone calls from the same country. So when we come back after this quick little break, we're going to talk about that. So we'll be right back on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. We only have just a few minutes left for the day, and then it's going to be over to Jacqueline LaBelle in the 980 CFPL News Center for the afternoon News Wheel Programming, getting you all up to date on all the stories of the day, both here at home in London and around the province, across the country, around the world. They got you covered. But before we do that, speaking of around the world, probably about, like, I don't know, what, 10, 15 minutes ago, as we were on air, my cell phone lit up, Obviously, it's on silent, uh, but it lit up with a phone call coming in. You'll never guess where it said it was coming from. Honduras. Yes, the Central American country, Honduras. <laughs> and I was, I was rather surprised, <laughs> but I figured, oh, it's probably a spam call. And, uh, and I said to Andrew Graham, who joins us now, producer, hello. Hello. You recently also had a weirdo call.
7: I also did have a weirdo call from Honduras.
0: Huh. Was it today?
7: it was about you said 15 minutes ago yeah. mine would have been 17 minutes ago
1: yeah
0: <laughs> so they're trying the uh the newsroom i wonder if they called anybody else in our in our maybe, general vicinity
1: yeah,
0: interesting we now i've i've had some other weird calls over the last like i don't even know how many years uh, cuz this has been an ongoing issue for quite some time strange calls but it is funny when you see the far flung locations come up where's is, is is Honduras the strangest one for you or um
7: i've had Malta Malta, Malta? is a good one i'm proud of that one yeah <laughs> i've also had uh, a few south african com- a few african countries and south yeah. africa itself as well so uh, interesting but, yeah. but Malta is my one of my favorites yeah
0: that's a good one that's that's definitely out of the norm yeah i think one of my strangest one ones was Ascension Island. Wow. Yeah. Where is that? (laughs) Did you say, where is that? Yeah. Well, Andrew Graham, let me tell you. Ascension Island is an isolated volcanic island south of the equator in the South Atlantic Ocean. It's about 1,600 kilometers from the coast of Africa and 2,250 kilometers from the coast of Brazil. Wow. Yes. So it's interesting because Ascension Island featured in the very first season of the TV show Departures <laughs> which was a, a show on OLN for a number of years. I think it's still on in reruns. Uh, it was a trio of fellas actually from southwestern Ontario, a couple of guys from Brantford originally um, who were the, the main hosts on the show but it was a trio of of guys, Scott Wilson, Justin Lukacs and Andre Dupuis and uh, they travelled around the world for I think three seasons in total. I was a, clearly a big fan of the show <laughs> and they went to to Ascension Island, and it's actually extremely difficult to get to. Um, you have to essentially go uh, through a British airbase uh, in, in, in England first, and then you you fly there to the island. And it's very isolated. There's only like one or two flights a week. And uh, yeah, they had an amazing time while they were there. Uh, very interesting. But it certainly is isolated. So the fact that I was getting a phone call from Ascension Island, I was like, holy moly, am I back in season one of Departures? <laughs> Well, I I guess it's time to, on that note, on that bombshell, in the words of Top Gear, we're going to leave it for today. It's time to go. Jacqueline LaBelle is ready to deliver your news this afternoon. Many thanks to all my guests and to Andrew Graham for sharing his uh, phone (laughs) spam call stories. Thanks so much to everybody. Have a great day. We'll see you back tomorrow on London Live.